translated. The title is called The Stately Palace. This is what Christian has been brought to observe. And uh, the, the terminology is worthy of just some speculative theories. Of course, this is old Saxon language. Stately means beautiful. It means gorgeous. It's something that is opulent in nature. So let's not be lost in the term. Again, it's old English language. A stately palace is a beautiful palace and is speaking to the prestigious nature of the palace. We would call this a mansion, okay? This would be a mansion. But it also, also connotes authority. So a stately palace is really the dwelling place of the king. That's a good way to put it. A dwelling, the dwelling place of the king. This is what uh, Bunyan is uh, trying to convey to us. And of course, in his culture, there would have been many mansions as well. Of course, your Bible, King James Bible, most of our older translations come out of that genre as well. So it's not uncommon to the culture to know what uh, a shack is versus the pueblos. Uh, pueblos are the, um, the, um, the older homes that, that would not be as stately. They would be called common homes, but a stately palace is like a mansion. And uh, we'll get that language here in a moment. Uh, the title of our study is going to be The Stately Palace, Glory to Win. So the subtitle, Glory to Win, is really about the allegory. It's about the narrative that surrounds the palace. So as you know, Christian is being led into this fifth frame by the interpreter, and he sees a palace. This is what we're going to break down here in a moment. But he sees more than a palace. He sees people in the palace, and he sees activity around the palace. And it, this is a short narrative. I'm going to read it for us here in a second, and um, at least a portion of it, uh, as we will be dealing with uh, points number one through eight today. There are 16 sort of points to consider. I'm really just breaking down the whole uh, uh, allegory narrative and uh, breaking it down into its categories and addressing scripture around it. Um, so what we're looking at is what is called the stately palace glory to win. The point is, is that what, what Christian is being exercised in right now is glory and his observation of it, his his privilege to see beyond the world that he is presently engaged in. And this is uh, Bunyan's strategic attempt at letting us know um, where Pilgrim is in his journey while he's in the interpreter's house. And so um, we're going to do the reading of a portion of it. Uh, I thought I had put it in your bulletin, but I'm going to just read a portion of it as I have it in my outline here, and you can just listen to it. Um, this is what it says before we read our text. I saw also, this is uh, Christian, that the interpreter took him again by the hand and led him into a place, a pleasant place, that's the language being used, where was built a stately palace, beautiful to behold, beautiful to behold at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted. He saw also upon the top thereof certain persons walking who were clothed in gold. 
Then said Christian, may we go thither? May we go there? Then the inter interpreter took him and led him up toward the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in, but they dared not. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a table side with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it or guard it, being resolved to do to the men, to the men that would enter what hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian somewhat in amazement. That's where we want to stop. Um, because what I want us to do is look at the first eight lines in this account. Now was Christian in amazement. Um, look with me at Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verse 25 through 27. Then I'm going to take you to John 14, 1 and 2. I think these are good commentary texts to help us begin to frame what just happened in this allegory. In, John, in Luke 24, 25, this is Jesus talking to the two young men who are coming from Jerusalem, headed back to Emmaus. And as you guys know, they are completely unaware of Christ having risen from the dead. And they are unaware that the man that is talking to them is the Christ. The, the point in Luke's narrative is about the journey of the believer. And it's about the journey of the believer short of comprehending the gospel. Okay? They were there. They were at the event. They were even at the crucifixion. But they didn't understand what the crucifixion was about. So their departure from the crucifixion was without the gospel. Because the gospel is actually about the resurrection of Christ. They didn't see that. So they were disciples who would have been ignorant of the gospel. And of course, if they're disciples, then God has an interest in them, does he not? And so here comes the Lord Jesus alongside of them, walking with them. And here's what Christ says. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now, for many people, we would think that this is kind of harsh, that Christ would have used the term, O fool. But please remember, O fool is different in that time than it is today. We have a lot of sensibility around pejorative terms, don't we? We are very uh, emotionally uh, moved when somebody would call us silly or stupid or foolish or moronic. You moron, right? I mean, you can lose your job on that. You can get sued. You can get fired. You can get canceled. You can get all kind of stuff around those terms. And one wonders that too, but one wonders whether or not today we could handle any real kind of reproof. One wonders, are we being conditioned today to not be able to be corrected? Am I making some sense? All right, so it's important to know that Jesus would not have been agitated or he would not have been uh, provoked by their lack of information. In fact, this is going to be a key concept here. He calls them fools because they were insensible to all that they had learned in the Bible up to this point. The inference is this. They should have known that Jesus was going to rise again from the dead. 
So that's just a fundamental fact. I wanted to get that out before you. And you and I can ask the question, if we have read from Genesis to Malachi, shouldn't we also know what the Bible says about the coming of Christ, his suffering, his death, and resurrection? Of course, right. So um, the admonition was well. And remember, the goal of the Spirit of God, in whom Christ is being a type and pattern here, is to convince us of sin, right? Really here, this is a small inference to their sinful behavior in that when you and I don't give God 100% attention, we can miss something. And when we miss it where we had an opportunity to get it, it would be considered sin, would it not? Uh, and so to be admonished by God and by a master, the mediator, to take his word more seriously is a good thing. So he says, oh, slu oh, oh fools, and what of heart? Slow of heart to believe. Well, not, is that not all of our condition to some degree or another? And I want you to think about what he's saying here as we get ready to get into the narrative. When he says slow of heart to believe, it does not mean that they are completely insensible to understanding, but grasping it and holding on to it as the very truth of God is a process for all of us. Hearing truth, grasping it, and holding on to it as the very truth of God is hard for all of us. I'll say it one more time because it's nice and warm in here so your bodies are here but your mind may not be. Hearing truth and grasping it, that is intellectually understanding it, and holding to it as the very truth of God is a process. There's a discipline in learning how to hear God's word for what it is, the very word of God. Did that make some sense? Right. And so we have to train ourselves, Lord, ratchet up our capacity to give you undivided attention. I often pray that among us. Lord, give us undivided attention. Because you can be listening to someone and not be listening carefully. All right, we're back at the metaphor of the children, are we not? Because children often do not listen carefully, thinking all they need to do is just kind of hear what we're saying and immediately become what is called a forgetful hearer. And this is what's going on with our two brothers. Now, remember, these two men are going to be privileged, are they not? They're going to end up being the ones telling the disciples what the gospel is. So don't, you know, don't be apprehensive about this part. Conviction of sin before confirmation of righteousness is often necessary. Listen to what he says. He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And again, now what he's doing, he's talking about the totality of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Okay, so they were at least privileged to be people who had heard the whole narrative. Okay, now look at verse 26. Now here is what's going to get us into our discourse. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So now the master is being Socratic, is he not? He's now querying them on the assumption that they know the Bible. And if they know the Bible, they should know that Jesus came to suffer, that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that he came into the world to what? Die, be buried, and raised again. And here's what he's stating. Ought not Christ to have what one what? Suffered these things and to enter into his glory. 
Right, so this is a kind of tandem quality of the mission of our master that we want to take into mind, take into our mind as we deal with the stately palace. On the one hand, Jesus came to suffer. On the other hand, he came also through that suffering to enter into his glory. So I'll put it out before you now. You can't have the glory without the suffering. Now, that proposition is where you and I want to now understand the framing and the purpose and design of the allegory that's in front of us, okay? That's where we are. Now, I'll give you one more verse, John 14, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to walk through kind of exegetically every line that's in the uh, first eight uh, points of our outline. Jesus said to the disciples, this is about three or four days before he's taken uh, captive, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in who? Right, so he's making a, uh, a correspondence of equality between God the Father and himself as God the Son, right? So Now, the, the assumption is that, is that the disciples actually believe God. Now, what Jesus is saying is, if you believe God, believe me also. Now, now, the two are equated at the character level, but not necessarily at the relationship level for the disciple. You and I still live in a day right now where people say they believe in God, but not Jesus. And because the disciples are really human beings, which is what I love, as you do, they're real human beings, their process of development into maturity is going to be just that, a process, isn't it? So right now, they're just as oblivious as these two men on the road to Emmaus. They're just as oblivious. And so he says, believe, if you believe God, and you do, believe also in me. Now notice what he's about to say. This is going to anchor our basic framing of our title. Verse 2, please. In my Father's house are many what? So let me reframe that for a, a, a much more optical parallelism between this proposition and what's in the vision in my father's house is much room not many much room so I, I want you to capture that because the fallacy would be that everybody gets a mansion so I'm, I'm trying to help you understand how to frame this because Again, in Western culture, where we are so itemized and individuated in assuming of our own property rights, which is a carnal thing because it's a part of the first order of things. It's part of this world. The world to come does not merit that each one of us have our own island, our own state, our own nation, 40 acres and a mule. Right? The world to come does not actually um, define wealth and possessions at the level of what we might call measurements or scales. How much land do you get? All of that operates down here. Does that make sense? All that operates down here. If in my father's house is much room, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And what that means is I'm going to make sure that you're part of that inheritance. That's where I'm going. That's what Jesus is saying. But that first line will underscore the metaphor of the what? The palace. Because the king's palace is massive. It's stately. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's splendid. It's wealthy. It's prominent. It is a fort as well as an eminent 
place of being. That's the idea that, um, that Jesus is setting forth here as well. And this is the idea that John is setting forth. We're going to see it as we work through scripture. Now, under our uh, first point in your outline, you will see that I raise the observation as we deal with the beginning of the narration. I saw also that the interpreter took him again by the hand and led him into a what? Pleasant place. That's the first line. I'm taking the first line. And there's a couple of things I want to do with that line with you and I. It's to remind you and I that Pilgrim, whose name is Christian, is being led. It's important for you to get this. Pilgrim, whose name is Christian, is being led. That's the first line. That's the first thing you want to capture in that line. Notice again what it's saying. I saw also that the interpreter took him again, how? By the hand, right? So again, what we are to capture in the allegory is that Christian is not free to roam through the house any way he wants to because he's being taken on a guided tour. And the interpreter's house is really a collage of allegories, events that are going to uh, they, they are going to describe the journey of the believer, the life of the believer in this world. And now uh, Pilgrim is privileged to see something of what happens when one enters into glory, okay? And so this is where he's being taken by the hand. And, and I, I wanted to call your attention to a couple things here. Not only is he being guided, this is what John 16 verse 8 uh, teaches us, or 13 rather, John 16, 13. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you. He will guide you. You guys remember me talking to you about that? He will guide you. Howbeit, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you. He will guide you. And I want you to remember that because this idea of being guided by the spirit means that you and I are not independent operators. We are not taking this journey in a kind of free will, free independent agency sort of um, sort of meandering. We're not nomads just kind of finding our way. We're actually being uh, meticulously guided in a close relationship with the third person if we actually believe what the scriptures say about being led by the spirit. This is going to be Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. I want to read this and take up a few ideas here with you guys, if you can capture it. Um, for as many as are what? There it is, led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. Now, notice that term led. That led means that the Spirit of God is the leader. And we are the what? Follower. Right. And the leading is authoritative, okay? The term back in John 16, 13, to guide, means to take a position of leadership at the level of instructing the individual as to where to go and as to how to understand the journey and those points of interest that the interpreter is bringing him to. The term uh, hegemony, have you guys ever heard the term hegemony? Okay, so it's a very political term. Hegemony means to simply exercise power over a region, exercise power over people. To be hegemonic is to be a kind of ruling authority, like our government exercises hegemony on lots of different uh, states in the world, lots of different countries. We set our military down there 
we bring in our ambassadors and we exercise dominion over the policies in the land, okay? That's what it means to be hegemonic. That's the root term for being guided or led, okay? Uh, the other word is hadas, from which we get the term exodus, right? Ex means out of, hadas means the way. So when we use the term hegemonic hadas, it is saying God leads us out. He leads us forth. We are not taking this journey on our own. There's a real sense then as we are working with the interpreter, and I've told you the interpreter is Christ, but he is Christ by his spirit in our life. We are to honor the spirit of God as a real person with whom we are to learn how to listen to if we are going to be led into the truth in a concrete and an advancing way. I hope that helps. We'll get a chance to talk this through a little bit more tomorrow night. Um, I also saw the interpreter took him by the hand and led him into a pleasant, pleasant, pleasant place. That's the idea here now of something that was aesthetically beautiful, wasn't it? A pleasant place, aesthetically beautiful. This is the idea that Christian is capturing here. And of course, the kingdom of God, which is uh, the overarching term here, the kingdom of God to the people of God is to be understood as a beautiful place, a pleasant place. It, when we look at the Garden of Eden, the kind of uh, prototypical pattern of it, the Garden of Eden was a pleasant place. That's, in fact, the Garden of Eden is a prototype of what is called in the book of Re Revelation, paradiso, from which we get the term paradise. So I, I'm just going to build this around your thinking for a moment because there's a reason why, um, why Christian kind of goes through these emotional antics. He goes through three different emotional stages, and I want us to look at that tonight so that it makes sense. Um, the first thing that Christian experiences as being led by interpreter to this place is the beauty of the place. The beauty of the place, it was pleasant to him, pleasant to him. It felt good upon his eyes. He looked at it everywhere and there was nothing about it obtuse, nothing about it offensive, nothing about it that was rogue or uncomely. It is giving us the idea of the nature of the elevated state of the people of God in glory the elevated state of the people of God in glory. I'll give you three uh, adjectives for you to keep in mind around this term, and I'll try to convince us of this on Wednesday. The word is holy, holy. Holy things are to be viewed by God's people as pleasant and beautiful, holy. They are to be viewed as, God, as things pleasant and beautiful. The catechism for the people of God in the Old Testament was the tabernacle being built in the wilderness. And all of the material being used for that was material that was designed, once you put it all together, to create a beautiful mosaic, a beautiful stately environment. They were to use crimson, they were to use silk, they were to use gold and silver and precious stones. They used diamonds and rubies. They used all kinds of uh, ointments and incenses. So not only was it to be uh, observably beautiful, it was to be aesthetically oriented to both the smell as well as the sight. 
So something beautiful will be something pleasant to you as an aesthetic experience. Does that make sense? Right. And so like the garments for the priest were ornate. They were gorgeous. They were fabricated by wisdom. They had all kinds of details, symbolism, uh, 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 analogous metaphors to them. So nothing was out of order. Nothing was chaotic. And nothing also was disproportionate in its complexity. So some things can be, uh, you, can, you know how we say that, that garment or that outfit is too busy? You know how we use that term? That's way too busy. That's not the things of God. The things of God are never too busy. So one of the things you learn how to do is to determine when God is in it, you'll know it because when God is in it, it's not too busy. When God is not in it, it will be too busy for people that are, you know, prominently seeking self-glory. One of the things that we can know about the carnality of uh, uh, insecure people is that insecure people will overdo it in order to get attention. Insecure people will overdo it to, in order to get attention. So as I'm talking about the stateliness of the kingdom of God, of the palace, in, 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 in our English, when we use the term palace, we are um, contracting the word palatial, the palatial state. That means large, magnificent, uh, esteemed, beautiful, eminent, and dignified, okay? Palatial. That's what I'm talking about here. And you would know this. You would recognize these kind of beautiful places in wealthy communities around the world, would you not? And again, I want to emphasize another word else. We're laying a foundation for the visual uh, impact that impressed Christian. Everything was proportionately balanced, okay? Everything was proportionately balanced. And when things are proportionately balanced, you see it better. When a thing is proportionately balanced, you see it more comprehensively. If we're talking about a scale of anything, height, width, size, if there are going to be multiple components to it that are to be observed, then you want those components to be proportionately right, appropriate, so they can all be seen. You don't want to be collapsing a bunch of very minute categories so tight and so overlapping and so complex that a person misses it or struggles to even see it. And so it is here with uh, Christian. What he's stating is he was led into a what is called pleasant place where was built a stately palace. Here's the other term he uses. Beautiful to what? Right. This is important. This is important because what I want you to capture not right now for the moment is that what Christian is stating is that um, the interpreter who is a type of the Spirit of God has brought Christian into a beautiful experience. Okay? He's been brought into a beautiful experience. He is actually enjoying where he is. Listen to the way that it states in uh, point number two. Where was built a stately palace, beautiful to behold, at the sight of which Christian was greatly what? That's right. Very important. So what Christian is stating is that this experience that he's having right now with the interpreter is satisfying him. It's making him feel real good at the holy level, okay? Not at the non-holy level. Holy is the term we want to capture. Another word you want to capture is heavenly. 
heavenly. Biblically heavenly things are beautiful. Biblically heavenly things are splendid. They are imminent. They are majestic. They are proportionately magnificent. Heavenly things are. So I hope that comes home very much so. And I'm going to demonstrate something here in a moment, okay, about about this that Christian is experiencing because this is going to be the challenge, okay? It says delight. It would be the same idea when the psalmist says in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will what? Give you the desires of your heart. That's Psalm 37, okay, around verse four. Again, Psalm one, verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law, he doth meditate day and night. And again, the idea of delight there is a reciprocal experience between the object and the subject. Like, remember when the tempter was able to speak to Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? When he got into her head and helped her to actually turn her eyes away from all the other trees and lock in on that tree, remember what it said in Genesis 3? And it was a tree to be desired because it was also beautiful to look upon. So the idea of delight is something that you and I as creatures made in the image of God are made for. We're made for delight, that's the whole idea. Again, we can actually sum this up in the person of Jesus, can we not? Because what did the Father say in Matthew chapter three when the heavens opened up? This is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well, please, it's the same word in Isaiah 42, which means to be delighted in. I delight in my son. You are happy with that. You are satisfied. You are gratified with that. So right now we can easily say Christian is enjoying this guided tour, is he not? He's enjoying this guided tour. So it's extremely important to capture that. Notice what he goes on to say now in point number three in our outline. He saw also... He saw also upon the top thereof certain persons walking. Now we go from a solid state event to now something more dynamic and active. And I want you to capture the terms because we're dealing with allegory, are we not? So now we're moving, moving from a parable to a storyline. He saw, Christian saw at the top of the palace. That would mean the roof of the palace. That would mean the ridges of the palace where often the guards would be walking the terrace, okay? Wherever Christian is, and I'm not going to give you, give you, uh, you the, the storyline fully yet, Christian could see up at the top of the loft people walking. Did you get that? So now he knows that this stately palace uh, is a place that is busy with real human beings, that this is a commonwealth that this is a society. Now notice what he says about it. He says, he saw them upon the top thereof, certain persons who were clothed all in what? Right, so in addition to the environment being pleasant, remember what I told you? He brought me to a pleasant place. In addition to the building being stately and beautiful, so pleasant and beautiful, now the people are viewed as eminently adorned in gold. You capture that. All right, so the biblically disciplined Christian 
would know that gold is viewed in scripture as the highest commodity of any kind of wealth, any kind of uh, treasure, any kind of um, mineral, because that's what gold is. It is a fabulous uh, commodity that at the highest level actually describes the nature of God, does it not? So the idea of gold here is the idea of reaching a maximum state of, for back, lack of a better word, glory. So these people that he's seen walking at the top of the stairs are all clothed in gold. I'm going to use a synonym here. They are clothed in what? Glory. They're clothed in glory. So there are Bible verses that I want to lay out here as we deal with this first, second, and third line here. What is Christian observing? He's observing men and women who have been tried and have passed through the fire of testing and have proven to be what they said they were, Christians. Listen to James Gospel chapter, James message, James chapter 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man, the woman, that does what? Endure temptation. And really the word means to actually completely endure trials. For when he is done being tried, that is the uh, verbal grammar here. For when he or she is done being tried, he shall receive the crown of what? That's right, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And that is really what is being hinted at now. Who are these people in this stately palace? These are people who have passed the trial. They have made it through. They are on the other side of the journey. They are in the state of, remember you and I are in between grace and what? They're where? At the glory state. Are y'all keeping up with me? They're at the glory state. And, and Christian is getting an opportunity to see this. Let me give you a few more Bible verses to underscore that what we're looking at and them being clothed in gold is being rewarded with the crown, the crown of life here, the crown of life referring to the imminent quality that only can be identified with God because God himself is eternal life. God is eternal life. And so notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. This is going to make a lot of sense. I'm going to give you a few verses on this, and then we'll be able to lock it down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He says that the trying of your what? Now, it's the same thing that James just said, right? Blessed is a man that endures trials, right? That the trying of your faith be much more precious than what? Gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So where is the believer headed? To glory. A state of glory. A state of eminence. So now when we're talking about something that is analogous to it or parallel to it, at the highest level, again, of the value system in our world is gold and silver and bronze and precious stone. And certainly gold is the thing that God told the Israelites to lay over all the articles in the tabernacle. The altar was to be laid over in gold. The, uh, the altar of incense, the, altar, uh, the brazen altar for uh, sacrifices, uh, laden with gold. The altar of incense, laden with gold. The candlestick or the menorah, pure gold. Okay? The labor for washing was a mixture of gold and bronze, okay? And so gold was to gild 
the whole of the tabernacle because it symbolized the presence of God, the imminent matchless work and presence of God. I like the way that Job puts it. Job chapter 23, verse 10 and 11. And you and I were just looking at how Job struggled in the, um, the trial we were dealing with under our fourth uh, framing, dealing with the fog of war, right? Um, that, that Christian had to deal with. Notice what Job says, but God knows the way that I have taken. When he has done what? Tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So take that proposition because we're getting ready to shift gears here in a moment. So right now what, what, what Christian is doing, he's looking at the state of glory, which is a, a post-tribulation experience, because remember, there is no glory without what? Suffering. And this is axiomatic to the gospel. There's no glory without suffering. Now, glory will appeal to you, and glory will appeal to me, and glory will allure us, and glory will delight us, will it not? It's a experience that is delightful. The idea that we live with God forever, that we are uh, 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 we are obtainers of eternal redemption, that we are sons and daughters of God, that we bear the spirit of God for all eternity. That's all delightful to the soul, is it not? Right, that's the first emotional experience that Christian has here and is worthy of you and I absolutely capturing that idea. Look at point number four in your outline because this is what it goes on to say. Then said Christian, so up to this point, all Christian is doing is observing it, isn't it? Now he's what? Responding. He's speaking. Now notice what he says. Then said Christian, may we go in thither. Can I go in now? Can I go into this place that is pleasant in its state, that is magnificent in its size that is beautiful in its scope that brings delight to my soul wouldn't every one of us want to be able to have that same kind of desire so what I call this view that Christian is dealing with is the distant view of delight this is the distant view of delight because he said he was delighting in it right the distant view of delight and this view was also for Christian. Here's another term that you and I want to get compelling. Compelling. I want to be instructed by that because the question you and I can raise is what compels you? What compels you? You and I are putting our eyes on things every day. And every day things are putting their eyes on you. And optics are setting themselves in your way and mind every day. And here's the question. What compels you? Or what repels you? So right now what you're seeing in the analogy here is Christian is being led by the Spirit of God into an experience that is compelling. It's compelling enough for him to say, I want to go there. You got that? All right. Very important to get. Very, very important to get. If you and I are going to tell people that as, you know, children of God, we are in between grace, which is the reason why the Holy Ghost can hold our hand, and glory, if we're in between grace and glory, where are we headed? To glory. What are we made for? Glory. Why are we made for glory? Because God is glorious. He's called the King of glory. Christ is called the Prince of glory. 
The Spirit of God is called the Spirit of glory. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. I'm going to give you a few more, and then I want to come back here to this proposition and show you something. we got about 10 minutes. Listen to what 1 Peter 4, 14 says. If you suffer for the name of Jesus, what? Look at, look at the verse. Don't look at me. What does the verse say? If you suffer for the name of Jesus, what? No, no, just look at what it says. If, 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 you, if you be, that word reproach means suffer for the name of Christ, happy are you. So, so stay here for a second. Stay here for a second. Is that a feeling? No, it's not an experience. It's not a feeling. No, no, no. It's an experience. A feeling is an experience. Y'all got to think with me now. Because you can be really trapped if, if happy is really defined by feelings. Now, again, this is an old Saxon Elizabethan term that means blessed. That's the same word, eulogios, okay? Eulogios. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. This is the whole of the Beatitudes. Do you know the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That whole beatitude is not about how you feel. It's about what you are in relationship to your master because you stand in the same stead that he does in a world that does not like him. Here's something for you to capture with that. There's something for you and I to capture. Heaven will tell you that you are blessed because of a position and a status that you have with heaven and that has nothing to do with how you feel did you get that no, it's important to get well, let me ask you the question is Christian right now under this experience in the interpreter's house blessed is he blessed does blessing have anything to do with how he feels right they are categorically distinct now, one might produce the other, but he's been in the house now for four frames and we're on the fifth one. He's getting ready to go to two other frames, is he not? And he's not particularly going to like those two other frames. The man in the cage and the brother that can't get away from Judgment Day, that's going to bring for Christian significant alarm. Do you hear me? But it doesn't change the fact that he's being what? Blessed. This is what Jesus is saying. The paradoxical nature of the um, Beatitudes is this. Your attitude is that you see yourself as blessed when you don't feel that way. It, it's not called the feel attitude. It's called the Beatitudes. If I move too quick, you'll miss the allegory. I don't want you to miss the allegory because there's something interesting about what Christian is going through that I want you to capture. And you know what that is? Christian is under a compelling view of something that brings delight to him. Y'all got that? Because of its distance. Because of its distance. Okay? Because of his distance. And it's so compelling to him from the place at which he's at. What does he say to the interpreter? Can we go? Can we go? Right? It's kind of like the experience that the disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was manifested in their presence in what is called the transformation. 
he was transformed in their presence. The metamorphai, that's what it says. He was metamorphosed in front of them. And what happened? He showed his glory. His whole body became brilliant. And the light of his divine nature shined through. You guys remember that? And it was so compelling to the disciples. What did Peter say? Lord, it's good for us to be here. You know what he was saying? I don't want to leave. Because it was so compelling. The father spoke. The cloud descended. Peter, James, and John saw who? Moses and who? Elijah. How? In glory. That's Luke 9. You keeping up with me? These are fantastic experiences that these men are having that compels them. All right, so now this is important because Christian has now opened his mouth and said to interpreter, uh, Mr. Interpreter, can we go there now? And Mr. Interpreter says, yes, let's go. Is that what he says? No. No. It's not what he says. I'll come back here again tomorrow. Let's look at point number five in your outline. This is the fifth line in this allegory. I want to show you something. Look at what the fifth line says. Then the interpreter took him and led him up toward the door of the palace. You guys see that? You ready? Christian said, can we go there now? Can we go in there? He said, no, I want to show you something. He took him and brought him near to the door. So before he had what is called a distant view. Now he has what is called a near view. He's near the what? He's near the door. Now, doors have always been important for the pilgrim, have they not? Because what is going on in the pilgrim's life? What's happening with Christian? He's being what? Drawn. He's still in the drawing stages, is he not? And therefore, he's advancing. We are not yet at Calvary. He's being drawn. And remember, he had to go through two other doors. The first door he went through was the wicked gate. The second door he went into was interpreter's house. Now mentally, he's going up to another door, which actually describes the end of his journey when he leaves the interpreter's house, and it's the door into heaven. Am I making some sense? Revelation chapter 4, one. I got a few more things to share with you guys here, and then we'll come back. Revelation 4, one. Listen to what it says. This is John speaking after that he spoke to us about the seven churches in Asia Minor. Look at what uh, verse 1 says. After this I looked, said John, and behold a what? A door was opened in heaven. This is the constant language of scripture that heaven is closed to us until God opens the doors. You do know that, right? Heaven is closed to us until God opens the doors. Heaven is closed to you and I in our thinking, in our contemplation, in our comprehension, in our understanding. Heaven is closed to us in our affections. Heaven is closed to us in the totality of our being until God swings the door open and allow us to participate in revelation. Did you hear what I just stated? 
So listen to what he says. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said what? Come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And this here is your pointer passage for what's going on in interpreter's house. Christian is now being elevated in his comprehension of future glorious things. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's being elevated. And it would make sense that when he sees these future glorious things, he would immediately want to be there. It would make sense. But why does the interpreter say, no, I need to show you some other things? Because you and I need to know the difference between distant things and near things. What Christian is moved by right now is what is called outcome orientation. The end of the matter. Christian is looking at what things will be when we finally die or go to glory or Christ comes again. This is the idea that Jesus is coming and when he comes, he's going to fix everything. Wonderful narrative. We believe it, don't we? We believe it. But there's something between the eschaton in our present state. Do you know what that is? A journey. A journey. There's something that precedes glory. Do you know what that is? Suffering. I just shared that with you. It's too warm in here. I know you're not getting it. What precedes glory is what? Isn't that what Luke 24 verse 27 said? Ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into his what? So if it happened to him, must it not also happen to us? Are you guys getting what I'm saying? So I want us to turn the corner with the vision for a moment so you don't miss the, the, the narrative. There's a point here. This is verse 26. Go back to point number, uh, uh, point number five. Then the interpreter took him and led him up toward the door of the palace. And behold, and behold, at the door stood a great company of men. Do you see that? So now uh, Christian is near, right? He's near. He's not distant. So now he's seen some things that he did not see back here. He's close enough to see the door entering into the kingdom. And now the door is crowded with men, is it not? That's a different optic than what he had when he was way back there. Way back there, all he saw was glory, saints walking in gold, hallelujah time. Sounds like pliable. Remember how pliable enjoyed the idea of going to glory. He just did not like that slew. See, everybody wants to go to glory, but they don't want to make their way to it. It's one thing to say, I want heaven. It's another thing to say, you got to make your journey to it. I am making some sense, am I not? All right, it's extremely important for us to get the difference between a distant vision eschatologically, the outcome, and a near vision is what we call the process. Being there is way different than the process of getting there. And this is what our account is going to teach us. You and I were probably just as naively influenced when we heard the gospel initially. And the gospel comes and it promises forgiveness of sins. It promises a walk with God. It promises eternal life, doesn't it? 
It promises God being with you even to the end, doesn't it? And in your mind, you're thinking, I'm set for glory. But there are tons of other promises inherent in the call of the gospel that we often do not give credit to. The gospel promises struggle. It promises suffering. It promises trials. It promises tribulation. This is what Christian is about to learn. This is called the near vision. The distant vision, we can all hypothesize and, and sing, hallelujah, I'm headed to glory. What a wonderful day that will be. But the struggle that you and I have is called the near vision, the everyday walk, the step-by-step journey. And then the awareness that there are a whole lot of people who are crowding the door. Because that's what it's telling us, isn't it? Notice what it says. It says, then the interpreter took him, led him, up, led him up toward the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in. Do you see that? What's that last little clause? But would what? Aye. They would not. That's what durst means. Durst means dare not. They are desirous, but would not go in. We've got a problem here. Scotty, we've got a problem on board. What is that? Now, Christian is being taught that a lot of people talk about going to glory, but they don't want to pay the price to get there. You keeping up with me? A lot of fellows there. A lot of fellows there. So I told you about the recapitulation principle, didn't I? Recapitulation principle is where God will show you a truth earlier on, and then he will bring that same truth to bear down the line in a slightly different way, sometimes more magnified, but it will have a direct, undeniable correlation with a previous truth, such as I've shared with you before in, in the scriptures where Abraham lied, about his wife and then here comes Isaac doing the same thing lying about his wife these kind of patterns recapitulate themselves in the scripture they're called patterns the first pattern that correspond to this one where the men is the men are crowding the door and they're, they're looking like they want to go in but they're not going in has to do with Christian being at the wicked gate remember and as he was about to go into the wicked gate what did goodwill have to do snatch him in why because there was adversaries at the gate ready to shoot him if he delayed if he hesitated if he halted remember that i'm gonna get i'm getting ready to close out with the idea here because we'll pick this up tomorrow but notice what the uh, uh the 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 vision is it says in a durst not look at verse six there also sat a man at that point number six rather there also sat a man a little distance from the door at a table side with a book and his inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should what? Enter therein. So I want you to capture this because this is clear. This is Matthew 20, verse 16. What you got are a whole bunch of people pretending to go in, but only one is seen to take the battle to go in. Do you guys remember the narrative? Only one decided to sign his name up. When they all stood back and looked at the door, they all acted like they want to go in, but only one takes up the challenge. 
Look at what it goes on to say in point number seven. Verse number seven, rather. He also saw that in the what? This is where the battle is. This is where it was at the wicked gate, remember? He also saw and saw in the doorway stood many men in armor to do what? Oh. Now all of a sudden you have, this is an opposition. This is an opposition. These are not men who are friends of the palace. These are adversaries of the people that want to go in. Are you keeping up with me? These are not friends of the king. These are enemies of the king. These enemies of the king, if we have embraced what we learned on Sunday, that God is sovereign over all things, is he not? God made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. Did he not make Satan? Did he not make the fallen angels? Did he not know that there would be a warfare? Did he not tell us in the world you will have what? Trouble. Can you see it now? Two verses are coming to mind. First of all, are you ready? Many are called, but few are chosen. You can see that now, can't you? Can you see it now? This is what I love about. So now think about what the interpreter did. I'm going to stop right here. We'll pick it up tomorrow. You know, we can go two hours tomorrow. The interpreter would not let Christian be deceived that the only thing to be had about glory was the aesthetic beauty and delight of it. He would not let Christian think that this was an easy thing to do, just walk inside the doors. He would not let Christian think that salvation is such that you and I don't have to struggle in it, through it, for it. Did that make some sense? He would have been lying to Christian about the real journey if he had not. And so we close with Acts chapter 14, 22, which is what the apostle laid out to the early Antiochian church. Here's what he said. He says, and they went from uh, church to church, confirming the souls of the disciples. That means teachings, okay, to teach them. Confirming the souls of the disciples. You and I need to constantly be confirmed. You understand that? We need constant confirmation because we will actually, we will act in a sort of anti-confirmational mode against ourselves. That's another story. We will be our own worst enemy if we're not constantly being educated into remembrance of who we are and why we are here. So confirmation of the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to do what? Continue in the faith. As we have it in our, uh, our, our account, only one brother wants to wage the war to get inside. And that's what you and I are going to look at tomorrow night. All those men are there, but what they see are a host of opposition. And I might as well just let you capture this now. It is satanic opposition. It's satanic opposition. The last thing that the enemy wants you and I to be is saved. You and I got three, we got three questions that you and I have to work on between now and Friday. Here are the three questions, and I'll finish reading the verse. Question number one, what does your fight look like? Remember what we saw over in verse eight? Now was Christian somewhat in amazement. Now was Christian somewhat in amazement. You guys see that? Now was Christian somewhat in amazement. Why is he amazed? First, he was pleasantly delighted 
and joyfully expected, but now he's amazed. You guys see that? All right, so this is the term that's used all through the Gospel of Luke. Thaumazo is the Greek term. And do you know what it means? It means to be perplexed. It means to be in wonder, something fixing your attention where you're not quite sure what to make of it. So Christian goes from this, the confident, joyful desire to be in the kingdom to now alarmed about what's happening at the door. Do you see it? Alarmed at what's happening at the door. That term amazement is not a resolution term. It's a, an analysis term. It's the term that is used in the Gospels when Jesus would do a miracle and people would be astonished. Now, when they're astonished, it does not mean they believe. It just means they are wrestling with this optic and don't quite know how to put it together. Are you keeping up with me? It's what happened to the disciples when they were on the boat in the water and the waves rose up and Jesus spoke to the waves, said, peace be still. And then all those brothers ran to the back of the boat and said, what kind of man is this that can speak to the waves? Who is this brother? They were struck with astonishment. Literally, the term means to be to have an out-of-body experience. I've talked to you guys about that before. An ex existential experience is when you become ungrounded in yourself and now you are wrestling with, are you ready? Is this real? I told you what we do in our mind when we are in crisis mode and the pressure is great on us and we don't have a point of reference by which to understand that thing and thus be grounded. We seek to unreal it. Have I shared that with you? Right. That's what happens in war. That's what happens when you're traumatized. That's what happens when you enter into an immediate, abrupt difficulty that now keeps you from being able to put it together, rationalize it, and ground yourself in some kind of premise of truth to say, oh, this is what this is. That's what Christian is. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Now, he'll learn what's going on from points number nine through 15, because that's why the interpreter has taken him there. And so you and I will learn it too. 